Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. My name is Sharonik Boshu. I'm a doctoral candidate in the English department at New York University. And I co-host another podcast called High Theory, which is available at hightheory.net, where we take apart difficult ideas from the academy in very short episodes. Today, we are talking about a wonderful new book titled Love and Reparation, a theatrical response to the Section 377 litigation in India by Danish Sheikh published by Seagull Books. Danish Sheikh is a playwright and activist lawyer currently engaged in doctoral research at the Melbourne Law School. His work explores ways in which practitioners of the law can bring their subject positions into conversation with their conduct of law, along with an exploration of hopeful, imaginative ways of doing legal practice and legal critique. Prior to his graduate studies, he has occupied four distinct roles, an activist lawyer at a grassroots lawyering collective, a legal consultant at an international NGO, an assistant professor at the Jindal Global Law School, and an award-winning theater practitioner. Danish, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for talking to us about your book. Yeah, thanks very much, Sharonik, for having me here. Thank you. So, you know, let's jump right on ahead. My very first question, could you take us a little bit through your intellectual journey that culminates in this book? Um, Yeah, so... I suppose the the intellectual journey is very much tied in with the story about the case at the heart of the book, and in some ways, that's a story that uh, that starts probably in 1860, actually, with the instatement of the Indian Penal Code, and you know, it's part of this systematic codification of criminal laws by the British, and and so one of those colonial imports was Section 377. So this is the law that criminalizes carnal intercourse against the order of nature and in doing so it effectively criminalizes homosexuality. So some of the earliest recorded activist organizing against the law goes back to the early 90s which is also when the first legal challenge was mounted by an AIDS advocacy organization. Now that challenge is ultimately unsuccessful and then at the start of the 2000s the NAS Foundation which is an NGO that also works on AIDS advocacy 
files a legal challenge before the Delhi High Court. And this one's ultimately successful in 2009. And also, almost immediately afterwards, it was challenged by this astrologer called Suresh Kumar Kaushal. And Kaushal files an appeal um, against the, before the Supreme Court of India, which is the highest appellate court in the country. And in 2012 is when the court decides to hear the final arguments in this matter. So now that that year, I think that moment is when this story really, um, really ceased to be a distant one for me in a few different ways. So yeah, so I'd, I'd always been invested in it, um, very invested. But then at that moment, I ended up being a part of the litigation team in the court. And my role at that point was probably as a kind of glorified intern. So I was very good at racing the corridors of the court to collect Xerox copies of obscure case law from the library. But whatever my role was, uh, it also meant that I got to stand in the court and, and hear the arguments. And um, And so at this moment there was a bit of dramatic irony that I, I genuinely didn't intentionally engineer. And that was that I happened to come out to my parents in in the same weeks that the hearings began. And it, it didn't it didn't go very well to start with, and that's a that's an understatement. And the hearings in the court didn't go very well either. And like that's a huge understatement. And and so, you know, so we're at this moment, and a lot of the things about this case were of course already personal because it was a law about my identity but then it began to take on this this sort of additional layer like this shape because it's also a thing that I was living in my daily interactions with my parents who were struggling with the questions that the judges were struggling with so so you know that there's this thin line between law and life and law in the books and law as we live it and for me that just essentially disappeared and so these hearings went on for for like six weeks and a lot happens inside that courtroom like hours and hours of back and forth between the lawyers and judges and that translates to hundreds of pages of court transcripts um now being in that courtroom was not a pleasant experience and that is again i'm putting this lightly Every evening, it's every day we'd go to court and then every evening as the hearings would wrap up, I would feel this immense weariness descending on me. And and at that moment, I didn't really have time to understand the process what was happening because there is an utterly manic pace to litigations of this nature. Uh, But then the hearings ended. The matter was reserved for judgment. We didn't know when the decision would be out. We had this big bulk of transcripts. And then there was the exhaustion of everything that was happening at home. So at that point, I did what any any academic does, and I wrote about it. So uh, I wrote this piece that braided my personal journey with the story of the litigation so far. And that piece appeared in the Yale Human Rights and Development Law Journal, and and it did well in the register, of, and you would know this, in the register of how academic writing might do well. So, you know, on the level of metrics and citations and all those things. And and it did something very powerful for me personally. Uh, it, it revealed a few things. So I think the first was that, ah, I could do a style of academic writing that felt nourishing for me. And then second, that actually that could still work 
as academic writing, that there was some space in the legal academy of all places for this kind of work. Um, And then the third was that, okay, wonderful, there was some space, but I still wasn't able to fully say the things that I wanted to say. So, you know, so not everything I wanted to express could be captured within this genre, even if I was bending the genre. But I, I, I left it at that, and I probably would have abandoned this trail. But then many months later, in uh, December 2013, the Supreme Court passed its judgment on this matter, and it was absolutely horrifying. And so one of the things that, you know, I just remember sort of like hitting with this almost like a personal kind of force was um, a part of the decision where they where they refer to LGBT persons as minuscule minorities undeserving of constitutional rights because, amongst other things, we were too small in number. Um, and, and besides that, just the way in which they cursorily dismissed all these arguments that we had built on years and years of backbreaking work. Um, and, and people before me, right? this work goes on for... Um, almost a decade and perhaps even even a longer time before that. So, so there's so much grief and there's days and weeks and months of cycling between sorrow and rage. And I found myself going back to the transcripts before the court, the hearings of the court, and passing them over and over and just trying to make sense of what has happened. Um, and as I read them, the the one thing that became clear was that this huge weight that I felt during those hearings, it was because the judges would just not listen. So yeah, so the so the element of listening is crucial. You know, we literally call it a courtroom hearing, but of course hearing and listening is not the same. So I can hear the things you say, but if I don't sit with them and I don't respond to them, then I haven't listened to you. I was clear that the judges were not listening. We were telling them, look, here is a law, it criminalizes X activity. It is a matter of historical record that it was intended to target homosexual activity. And it is a matter of fact that it has been used to systematically persecute queer people in India. And here, here is all the testimony, here are all the details. But the judges would just kind of over and over say, no, but the law is very technical. The law says carnal intercourse against the order of nature. It doesn't actually refer to queer people. And so there was this constant use of the language of the law, the technical language of the law, which would... Uh, which kind of was eliding or passing over the actual stories that were being told to the judges. Now, how do you like? How do you actually write about this, right? So you could, you could do an academic piece, you could do an essay, and in some ways, I had already done that, and people were doing things like that. But my question was, all right, I want to not just describe; I want to bring my reader there with me in that moment and say. I want you to understand that when I say these judges were contemptuous of queer people, I'm not exaggerating. And I can't just do that by asking you to read those hundreds of pages of transcripts from scratch. That is punishing. And also the length of this document and its verbosity actually diffuses some of the horror. So what if I think of myself instead as a dramaturg of these hearings, which of course, as we know, follow highly theatrical form anyway. And what if, as a dramaturg, I edit and I recraft without changing any utterance, and I simply pare it all down to intensify and maybe make a bit more explicit what has happened? So 
Yeah, and so so I guess what I began writing was a theatrical script, and it became clear fairly easily that this had to be the genre to tell the story, or at least the genre with which one might start telling the story, because, of course, you as a reader know that we leave the courtroom space at some point. But that's, I would say, where it began for me. Yeah. yeah. You know, I when I read the book, when I read the two plays, um, obviously, you know, this is uh, not just because I am a literature person myself, my first question was, you know, how innovative that this is, you're responding to this, and, you know, you make this very clear in your title, it's a theatrical response, and you're responding in theater, and you're, you've already answered my question, why theater? But I'm wondering um, if we expand the scope of this a little bit, and especially because you have given us um, this incredible story of your personal journey being constantly framed and often really painfully for you yourself, like with these national legal framings. So um, I'm wondering, uh, you know, how you see the relationship between this particular theatrical response, that is your book, and, you know, traditions of political theater that you are familiar with? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, one of the one of the tricky things for me when I started doing this was that I, I had I had an engagement with theater, which wasn't an institutional one because my training is very much in the law. But I do have some experience as a theatrical practitioner. Um, right. But I'll, and I'll, I mean, I might I might come to that in a bit. But I think that my reference points for this work were really kind of all over the place. But there, there is a thread that runs through them. And I think the thread is probably theater that has a certain kind of concern with justice that takes the form of law. Um, mm. So maybe the first the first kind of strand is theater that has a kind of journalist sensibility. So you might, I think, go back to something like documentary or verbatim theater. The other term you could use is tribunal theater, which, you know, so there's this great... Uh, tricycle theatre in London, where a lot of the works take on a, a really meticulous reenactment of edited transcripts of court trials and public inquiries. And the aim there is we must create as close a reproduction of the proceedings as possible. So that was right. that was certainly one kind of reference point. I knew, okay, this is a thing that exists. Though, um, again, as as we probably talk about, this this jumps off. This 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 is a starting point for me. Uh, the second reference point is from the the theater work that I actually did, which was uh, quite eclectic. And and even as, as I think back on it now, it's 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 a it, it's a completely bizarre journey. But essentially, culminated with doing Shakespeare in the Park with uh, oh. an amateur trope. Right. Uh, uh, it was composed almost 80% of lawyers. And we were a group that did uh, Shakespeare in Cubbon Park in Bangalore between 2014 to 2016. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was, there's there's a whole kind of... We could, we could do a whole other conversation on how this came to be. But my big thing there was, or my big question there was, how do we keep the Shakespearean text but mm. through editing and through dramaturgical choices in costume and staging, how do we translate this centuries-old text to speak to some contemporary questions of justice in the Indian context 
and make it yeah. appeal to this audience in Cabin Park in, in the city. And and so it was it was a gloriously lovely exercise, which I think for me actually prefigured the thing that I was going to do with the court transcripts and caution. So mm. I'm not going to change the language, but I'm going to draw out something by using those words and by reconfiguring those words in different kinds of ways. So so that's so that's I would say a second kind of reference point for me. Then the third was probably, um, let's say, theater, which is interested in legal form. The mm. My favorite example is, I think, Athol Fugard, who's the South African playwright. And his, mm. uh, so he has the Statements trilogy, but the one that I'm thinking of is this play called Statements After an Arrest Under the Immorality Act. And the opening two-thirds of the play feature this conversation between this black man and white woman. They're essentially naked on stage for this part of the play. They've they've just had sex. They're, they're having this conversation. It's a really intimate uh, kind of n- narrative. And then about at the two-thirds mark, the play, it, it kind of fractures as they get arrested by these police who intrude on the scene. And they get arrested under this titular Immorality Act, uh, which forbade uh, interracial intimacy at that moment in time. So, so what happens once that arrest is made is that that very intimate conversation that you saw for the first two thirds is then sort of translated into the legal language of a police complaint. And so you see that entire relationship then in that form. And so it's it's there's this sort of really jarring kind of thing about how the law then kind of understands or translates intimacy. So so I guess with all these different strands, there is you know there's a kind of reckoning with with justice, but it's 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 legal justice. Of course, there's there's a sense of politics here, but it is very much a question of how do we engage with law? What does the law do to us? What can we make it do? And as a law person, I, I think that's really the kind of conversation I feel best positioned to approach. So. Right. And, you know, in the book, you explore this question of legal justice in two places. The first one is called Contempt and the second one, Pride. And of course, we're going to talk about each play in detail. But before we do, I really want to know what this dyad, you know, what this binary of contempt and pride means to you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so I think, uh, and this is hardly a revolutionary thing for anyone who's written a long piece of writing. But once you fix your title, that becomes a really useful organizing frame for the rest of the work. Yeah. You know, because you have all these ideas, and then they they can sort of go spiraling out into the abyss. So with with contempt. Um, there were a few different ways in which I was playing on the word. The obvious one is the contempt that the court displays um, for queer people. Um, And it's one that you kind of see in almost every frame, even though, even though I'm not explicitly commenting on it, I'm I'm sort of letting the judges speak for themselves. Then there is something else, which is what we sort of classically think of as the law of contempt in common law, which is uh, a statement. A statement in contempt is a statement that is made that lowers the authority of the court. So, of course, you know, in the contemporary context, that has been often used to to police the way in which we talk about the court. 
But I thought what would be interesting is to say, all right, so is it possible for the court to lower its own authority if it essentially subverts any form of legal justice, which is essentially what happened in that decision? And so that's the other way in which I'm playing playing on the word. And then finally, and I think this is the question, or this is the link between the two players, which is the question of what contempt does to us. So to our bodies, how it seeps in. And I think maybe the word here is shame, perhaps. So that shame question then leads me to the keyword for the second player. Mm -hmm. Um, And so around this time, uh, I think this is when I would have first picked up The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. And there's this lovely bit where she talks about how the moment of queer pride is a refusal to be shamed by witnessing the other as being ashamed of you. So I, I think that that was a really helpful way for me to think about how the question of pride is inextricably linked with the question of shame. Mm-hmm. And so, so in some ways, I was thinking about shame because I was thinking about, all right, so we've had... You know, we, uh, I, I just started writing Pride after we'd had the decision to finally decriminalize homosexuality in India. So this was just after September 2018. And this huge moment of celebration in the country. And we're, all, we're having all these Pride marches as legal citizens. Um, but at the same time, there is this sense of something that hasn't gone, something that doesn't feel like it's lifted. Mm-hmm. And... and and so I, 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 I kind of think about that as this idea of shame in the play, um, and 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 of course the the question of shame here becomes coterminous with this idea of the shadow of the law, and how it's much harder to fight off the shadow of the law, particularly when the law is gone, because then it's not, it it's 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 a less material kind of. It's or it's a less it's a more diffused kind of fight in some ways, yeah. and so yeah. and so I think like that's where pride became the organizing principle. So what does it actually mean to live with pride, and how impossible is that gesture in some ways? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I didn't think about this in this way because after decriminalization, it becomes kind of you know the menace that exists. It becomes more nebulous in some ways mm-hmm. um so we will come to uh, the play pride but uh, could you tell us a little bit about what the play contempt is about yeah so um so like i said we we do of course um we do center or we start in some ways with those those scenes in the courtroom and my desire to um, to bring the audience or to bring the reader into the into the courtroom space and say, well, this is what it felt like. But pretty early on, it felt like that that was sort of limiting what the play was doing. And so, and this is actually where I am particularly lucky because uh, one of the really great things about having uh, a community of activist lawyer friends to think with who are of course very concerned with questions of the law but also somehow magically happen to be interested in questions of theater so uh, back in 2016 
the very first draft of contempt that i had was just a series of scenes in the courtroom and each mm-hmm. scene was just following the path of a different argument made before the court and how it fails and and so it was saying something about uh the court and it was saying something about how the judges failed to listen but as my very generous uh, readers at that point pointed out um i wasn't necessarily thinking about what the lawyers had done um, or hadn't done or how we might actually find ways of taking responsibility for the law or how a conversation made in the courtroom is still a two way kind of thing so essentially in other words what is it that lawyers can do differently and so that's when the question of the affidavit kind of started coming in so the affidavit yeah. is this document that it's a bridge it's a bridge between uh, the law as it is lived and the law and the statute books and it's a way in which you try to translate that experience before the court and you say well this is you know this is how the law affects people um but at the same time there's obviously a certain style in which you which you narrate or you relay the affidavit and i think uh, if you if you go back over the hearings and if you even just look at the way that lawyers present affidavits there is a certain form there is a certain manner in which it's done and one of the things that i was trying to argue was that that form risks leeching out life from the law um mm. and so what does it mean if i as a lawyer go before the judge and i tell you okay so i am presenting to you the story of x person who has been impacted by the law and right. the story is essentially a a story of violation a terrifying horrific story of violation but it reduces the person into just that act and it takes away some of the quotidian experience of this person the, the things that makes the person a person and right. and so is this is there a question then of how we can tell those stories within the register of law differently so what contempt mm-hmm. then ultimately became was a way to intersperse the stories of queer lives uh, within mm-hmm. the register of the courtroom and say well this is a different kind of way in which the hearings could have gone and spoiler alert but it doesn't mean that um it doesn't mean that the play ends differently so in my in my version of the story it's not that the judges are deeply moved by this but right. there is still a strange sort of defiant victory and that that part i won't spoil but yeah i do think that it has this it it, it has its own version of a hopeful conclusion right you know what what's really incredible about i think this play and this is you know from the point of view of me as a reader who is you know who has no on reading in um legal studies at all but i thought you know when i was reading it i thought um the affidavit if i'm not mistaken etymolo- etymologically affidavit has to do with oath making in some ways mm-hmm. um and so you know the so the the concept of oath and i think relatedly the concept of trust comes through in some ways and and i thought okay so these are kind of you know these are different genres you have an argument which is 
about efficacy and efficiency, but then you have an affidavit, which is about, as you said, it's about trust. It's about, um, it's about a kind of, um, it's a statement, uh, based on an oath against, uh, you know, such characterizations like, uh, oh, you're a minuscule minority in some way. So I thought, you know, the, the pairing of the argument and the affidavit, which was going to be my next question, but you preempted me. So thank you for that. Um, but, um, thank you so much for explaining, you know, what the affidavit does. And I think uh, when uh, readers will read your play, I think that will really come through. Um, so let me ask you about your second play then. Could you give us, and, you know, you've already told about us about, you know, how, you know, the idea of pride became associated with your re- reading of Maggie Nelson. But if you get, again, like, like um, contempt, if you give us, could you give us a little bit about what pride is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out, really. But <laughs> so it's it it was a much harder thing to do in many ways because starting with what the object of critique and contempt was. So you know there was this decision. Most of us could agree that it was a bad decision. Most of us could agree that dissenting against this decision was almost a, a matter of duty, and and. And and if nothing else, the emotions that the decision evoked were so clear, so uh, <laughs> almost pure, right? This this sense of fury and rage and anger that that mm. it sort of in some ways contempt was a play that wrote itself. With pride, it it didn't follow any kind of linear journey because I I didn't actually know what I was feeling. I knew that, or I had anticipated that once the decision would happen. Once decrim- this big moment of decriminalization would happen, I would feel a sense of joy um, right. and I would feel some kind of freedom. And and then the curious deflating thing was when I didn't necessarily feel those things. Right. And, and this is, you know, again, I was in the courtroom. I was in the courtroom doing the hearings. I was in the courtroom when the judgment was read out. And I remember going through the motions of trying to celebrate but not somehow so obviously uh feeling in an intellectual sense that this is excellent but something not lifting like i said earlier Mm. and uh and so it started with an attempt to try and unpack that what is this thing what is this shadow that actually hasn't gone and and then also weirdly remembering that there were moments of living in defiance of the law that in some ways felt more joyful than this moment when it was officially institutionally gone. So so I was, I was thinking about that and I said, okay, so actually what's happening right now is that I've been telling myself a story about what it will be like when the law goes and that story has not really made narrative sense. And at that time, there were a lot of debates, a lot of conversations going on around what the legacy of this case is in the sense of how did we win this case? You know, was it, yeah. was it X set of lawyers uh, following um, a purportedly brand new legal strategy? Was it another set of lawyers who had followed a certain strategy for about two decades and that strategy was coming to fruition and this new strategy was just, um, you know, a, a final kind of um, 
what's the word for it anyway um so yeah. so, so so yeah so so the first thing was okay so is this, is this the question of legal strategy is this an activist victory is it is it all those decades of queer activism kind of finally finally paying fruition is it um is it something else is it actually that we've spent too much resources in this fight and we should have moved on a long time ago and okay, now let's really move on. Let's not waste any more breath talking about this. So, so anyway, all these narratives. And again, what I what I thought was fascinating was how divergent and how pluralized they were. So depending on who you asked, the case had a different, a wildly different, distinct trajectory from um, in terms of you know what it took to win. So I said, all right. So there is, there is, there are these set of narratives. Now, what happens if I imagine all of them notionally taking space in one particular forum, and what could that be? So, w- what made logical sense then in in the course of the play was, well, maybe the 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 context of these conversations happening is the first post decriminalization Pride meeting, and mm-hmm. it then becomes a useful way to link those conversations to this idea of pride um and then as for those as for that personal sense uh, as for that personal kind of reflection about um why it felt unfree or why it didn't feel quite right i um it was able to use the device of therapy mm-hmm. to kind yeah. of work to some of those questions and and the device of therapy was kind of interesting so uh whereas with contempt again i had a very clear kind of legal form which was the courtroom hearing and then you could kind of keep moving in and out of the courtroom hearing i think here i was kind of at first struggling because i felt very much like i was out of my depth in some ways and then i thought you know i as someone who works with the law i do want some kind of question of form to kind of guide me or to bind me and what's really interesting, I think, about the therapy space is that if, if you take a step back, it does or it can mirror a version of legal form, a version of trying to search for the truth or, or make a certain kind of claim where you're exploring these questions in a give and take with the therapist figure. And, and for me, at least, it became, okay, so... How does this actually mirror the way in which a, um, a lawyer is in dialogue with a judge, but actually in dialogue with a judge, right? So not an adversarial form where you're essentially at odds, but what does it mean to kind of mutually seek some kind of answer together? Um, right. And so, yeah, so I guess that that then finally became pride for me, this interviewing of scenes in therapy with scenes in a pride meeting and they all kind of culminate or diverge or converge in this question of well what is pride anyway right yeah um so you know just i think you've already sort of begun to answer this um i'm wondering you know you have from the journey from contempt to pride if i could phrase it that way uh i thought you know when i read the play I thought the therapist's office, um, you know, gives the audience the suddenly kind of scoping of the private in a way that wasn't there in your work before. And I thought, you know, how, if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, how that privacy pairs with 
or how that privacy of the therapist's office, where, you know, a lot of the, as you said, a lot of the similar questions to the courtroom hearings are getting worked up. But at the same time, it is a space that is, in, in its scope, so very different. And so it stands out because um, after the, the after decriminalization, it is such a public moment for um, LGBTQ rights. So you have, but you work that out in this very private space. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit on that. Yeah, so I guess that whole public-private question, it it very much marks some of the fundamental debates in, in this case. But I think in some ways it also goes back to my questions and concerns around the way in which we do academic writing, whether in the law or otherwise. But I think I, I think much it, it's definitely much more of a problem in the law. Um, but starting with the with with the public private question and the litigation. So when we go back to the filing of the initial petition, one of the chief grounds under which the argument for decriminalizing homosexuality was made was that. Section 377 was violative of the right to privacy. And so at that point of time, uh, we know that there's a fair bit of opposition, um, particularly from feminist groups who are saying, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a problem if we anchor this question to the right of privacy, given the way in which uh, the private sphere has been, uh, you know, um, given the way in which the private sphere is the site of domestic violence and sexual abuse um, so going with that critique of privacy uh, so how can we just kind of how can we anchor this really crucial kind of debate to to privacy rights and then and that's not to even start talking about how privacy is um, ultimately a very privileged kind of space to have you 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 don't necessarily have a claim to even that zonal kind of privacy in many cases in the country so so there is that kind of tension that happens at the start. And then one of the ways in which the Supreme Court's final decision tries to reconcile that is to say, well, privacy is actually about autonomy. It's about my decision about what I want to do with my body. And so that is a idea of privacy that I carry with me in the public space as well. So if... And so that's a really great phrase, Ashim sort of now forgetting, but they talk about the ambient heterosexism of the public sphere. And the only way in which we can really challenge that is by carry this private ability to do what we want with our body in public. And and it's a tricky kind of thing because they're not saying actually go and sodomize in public spaces that would be wonderful but that's not exactly the thing that, that the judges are talking about. But they're but but what is it that they're talking about, right? So what does it actually mean to carry privacy in public? Uh, what does it... And, and, and so I think in some ways that is one idea in which I'm trying to work out by the juxtaposition that I do in this play, which then becomes what does it mean to be able to love publicly and mm. politically? And, yeah. and so, so the obverse of that is what does it mean to not be able to love publicly and politically? And there are many ways to be unfree. There are many ways in which to not be able to carry that sense of pride or to not want to carry that sense of pride. Um, And 
And so I, I thought, look, there's something that is happening in the space of therapy, which might explain my bodily struggle to be a part of that public space. Um, right. Because in every other way, I seem to be the ideal subject for this, you know, the sense of, um, for the sense of pride and the sense of uh, privacy and to be able to kind of, uh, and to somehow still not want to valorize it. So what what is happening here? So I think, so, so that was the first kind of way in which I think I was trying to unpack those those tensions in the public-private. And, and then I think the second point, which is much more basic and, and a much shorter thing is, um, it, this goes back to something like uh, Patricia Williams, who writes in her, I think it's late 80s, early 90s book, uh, The Academy of Raisin Rights. Um, and she starts with a sentence, which goes something like, since subject position is crucial to my understanding of law, you deserve to know that it's a bad morning, um, something like that. So, so and 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 essentially, the the entire book is this sense of saying, look, you can't you can't talk about law without talking about subject position. It you can't talk about law without talking about the self, without bringing the self constantly in conversation with the experience of law, because that is the law. And right. so, for me, then the therapy space is essentially actually saying this is. This is what it means to live a life with law. Like it's, I, yeah, I can I can do those testimonies before the courtroom, and I can do those narratives in the public space. I can, uh, I can craft a story and say this is how the law impacted me. But actually, the law is also impacting me in the most quotidian of ways in which I shape my everyday encounters, in the mm-hmm. manner in which I love, in the conversations that I have with lovers. It's there. It's just it's it's not there in this obvious kind of way. So, in what way is it? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think we can do better in terms of you know what thoughts and feelings um, readers will be left with at the end of the book. I think that's a great summation. But let me you know my last question. Let me ask you, what are you working on now? And you know what what is the next thing that we can expect from you? Hmm. So, well, <laughs> I am currently finishing my PhD thesis or so I would like to think. <laughs> and, as you, yeah, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. So I, I would say that I can definitely, I can see the finish line. And one of the joys, and it really has been joyful, uh, to be honest, has been um, A, doing the thesis at a place uh so, so I'm at the Melbourne Law School and I'm part of this um, center, which is called the Institute for International Law and the Humanities. And it's it's sort of in some ways the perfect space for someone like me who has my vision of the law, which is inextricable from the way in which it is lived and, and the way in which it is experienced via other media um, right. to kind of be able to explore it here. And, and, and in some ways... The easiest way to explain what I'm doing in my project is a a theory academic encounter with the questions that I've asked in this play, um, or rather, it it kind of began with that, and it's 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 kind of moving into this um, broader question where I'm where I'm trying to figure out what does it even mean to to try and talk about repair 
in the register of legal theory and legal practice why would mm-hmm. we want to talk about it and and how do we actually do it so how uh, and, and and so the way in which i'm doing that is by placing two very different kinds of things in conversation with each other so one is a set of dissenting practices against 377 that occur at different moments uh in in the contemporary kind of space so there is one uh, companionship contract between two queer women in a small town in the late 90s um and that becomes one site then there is a a very different kind of uh, queer choreographed uh, response to section 377 in 2016 that becomes a different site and so in all of these things in all these moments um you have people who are resisting the law at a moment when it is clearly considering them um or is clearly criminalizing them and recrafting law in a way that becomes nourishing for them and so how do we make sense of that act of repair and what i'm trying to do is is place it in conversation with a set of theoretical debates around repair that started in queer theory in the US in the late 80s early 90s um but have correlatives in legal theory so instead of just kind of saying okay that theoretical intervention can explain this practice it's sort of how do you read these two different practices one in theory world and one in practice world and how do you kind of oscillate them together to say well this is a jurisprudence of repair this is a legal practice of repair so that's that's my next thing brilliant and i can't wait to read or, or well encounter it in whatever form it takes whether it it's something i read or something i watch uh so thank you. you know uh, my best wishes thank you so much danish for talking to us about this book and congratulations on its publication yeah it was my uh, pleasure thank you for having me thank you and thank you our listeners and i hope You all have a great day. Thank you so much.